it's great to be with you this morning. And again, I too want to wish the fathers in the room happy Father's Day. Uh, you know the old saying, behind every great father is a mother rolling her eyes, right? Um, that's, I think, probably true in my house anyway. Um, I can still remember when my kids were born. My oldest is uh, named Evan. He's 18 years old. He's just graduated from high school, headed to Point Loma Nazarene. Woohoo! In the fall, I still remember when he was born. Uh, he's not here this morning, which tells you something about our relationship. Um, my favorite son, Keaton, is here today, though. So that's uh, glad to have him. Don't tell your brother. Um, I still remember when Evan was born, though, and some of you that have had kids, you remember this, right? I mean, it's just this amazing, surreal, out-of-body experience. I remember him coming out. That's all I'll say about that. Coming out, I remember them putting him in the warmer, like looking at him, staring at him, him looking up back at me with like this accusing look like, what have you done to me? Why have you brought me out into this cold world? Um, I remember those first sleepless nights in the hospital, right? And I- I've never met an angel, but the nurses that work with the newborns are the closest I've ever seen. I love them. They know how to swaddle in ways that are, I mean, I could never do that thing. Uh, they, they would swallow him, and, and sometimes they'd say, do you want us to take him to the nursery for a little while? And we'd say, yes, please. <laughs> Is that okay? Are we terrible parents if we send him? And then I remember bringing him home, right? And you put him in the car seat, and you have to prove that you know how to put the car seat in correctly, right? And we put him in, and we drove home, and he slept all the way, which was great. And, we, and when he unbuckled that car seat, and we brought him in, and we sat him in our little apartment there and sat him, and he was still asleep. My wife and, wife and I just sat there and stared at him. Just stared at him. And then I, then I remember thinking, is someone going to come and get this baby soon? He's going to wake up and have needs, and we don't know what to do. No one sent home a manual uh, with, with this. And then I remember Keaton coming, too. I can't leave you out, buddy. Sorry I had to embarrass you. But Keaton was in a hurry. He came fast, right? We got to the hospital just about in time for him to come. I mean, we got there in time, but he came out ready to go. That's kind of been his personality. That's probably why he's a sprinter in high school. He's ready to go ready to get out there and make things happen. Being a father, being a parent is kind of crazy, kind of wild, kind of hard, right? Kind of interesting. And I want to talk about, not so much about fathers, but I want to talk about families today, actually. Because you can't really talk about an isolated father. Wherever there's a father, there's got to be a mother, and there's got to be some kids to make one a father. And same thing's true for mothers and grandparents and all of us in many ways. Now, I'm a clinical psychologist, as James said, and one of the things I've become interested in the last 10, 15 years or so is an area of psychological research called attachment theory. And in attachment theory, what they've been able to do, researchers, is is they can look at infants and they can determine which kind of attachment style they develop with their primary caregivers. There's primarily two. One is what's called secure attachment. That sounds pretty good, right? I think I want to sign up for that. The other is what's called insecure not so great. And under insecure, there's, there's preoccupied, there's anxious, and then there's disorganized attachment. Now, what's really interesting about these studies is they've been able to follow these attached babies and these insecurely attached babies clear into adulthood now. This research has been going on long enough that we can follow them longitudinally. That's a fun scientific word. From the very beginning, years, years later. And what they've determined is that securely attached infants are in a better place in life in almost every way than those infants who are insecurely attached. They have better friendships. They do better in school. 
They do better in relationships later in life. They stay off drugs and, and stay out of you know, trouble with the law, much more than those kids who are insecurely attached. So it's caused us to say we ought to really pay attention to this, right? We ought to think about this somewhat. And here's the trick. The trick to having an, a securely attached infant is simply this, is paying attention, showing up, being regularly dependable and available. Not perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect parent, the researchers tell us. That's good. In fact, we talk about good enough parenting. Yeah, amen? Good, good enough parenting. So take the pressure off. But it's all about being available. It's all about being dependable. It's all about showing up. Now, again, this probably raises some questions for some of us. As James said, some of us haven't had great experiences with our fathers. Maybe some of us don't even know our fathers. But they're complicated relationships, right, with our fathers. Or maybe there's some of you today that want nothing more than to be a father, and you haven't been able to, to do that. And so that's difficult, and that's hard, and that's painful. We need to recognize and gather around one another when this, this sort of thing happens. And that's, again, why I want to talk about families. I want to talk about us being the family of God, the church, the body of Christ. You know, the early church began to refer to one another as brothers and sisters. You know that, right? We still sometimes do that. When I was growing up, Carrie, we used to say, Brother, Brother Strawn, how are you today? You know, we don't say that quite as much anymore. But in the early church, they did that, and part of the reason was they really understood that they were leaving one family and joining another family. And in fact, some of them may have actually lost ties with their original families when they left the worshiping community of that family to follow Jesus. They were joining a new family. They were becoming brothers and sisters in Christ. And you know what? If you read Hebrews, it's really cool because it talks about Jesus being our brother. You have a brother by the name of Jesus. So this early church understood this idea of becoming part of a family. And, and if you think about even in Matthew chapter 12, do you remember Jesus is preaching and they come to him and they say, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. They want to talk to you. And Jesus says something that sounds kind of rude in translation. <laughs> I don't think he was really being rude. I'd like to think of him as being a very respectful Jewish boy, right? <laughs> but he says, who are my mother and brothers? And then the text says he looks at his disciples. He says, whoever follows the will of my father are my mother and my brothers. So when I was a kid, we used to sing an old song, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Aren't you glad you're a part of the family of God here at Coastal Community Church of the Nazarene? You are part of the family of God. And that's what I want to talk about. And the good news, by the way, along those lines is, for those of us who have had insecure attachment to our parents... That's not the end of the story. Researchers have also been able to discover and determine that people can move from insecure to secure. It's called earned attachment. And you know how that happens? It happens by having a dependable relationship with someone else. It can happen even when you're an old person. Amen? It's good news. Our brains keep changing and developing even when we get older. The old stuff about your brain's done at 20, don't believe it. It's not true anymore. There's plasticity in there. It can change, and you can, old dogs can learn new tricks. But you got to be willing. That's the key, okay? you got to be willing to learn new tricks. So if we're going to talk about brothers and sisters and families and mothers and daughters and all that good stuff, we've got to talk about love, right? Love. 
L-U-V, love. <laughs> we got to talk about that. Have you ever noticed how it's a lot easier to love something in theory than it is up close and personal? Have you ever noticed that? Like, I love America, freedom, independence. I love that in theory. I'm not sure what that looks like for me to love in an embodied sort of way in the world. And I know that as a Christian, I'm supposed to love everybody, right? And I do, in theory. But what does that look like? How do I live into that? How do I embody that in my life? And we also love the church, don't we? Oh, we love this church. We love everybody in it, in theory. Except I hope they sit where they're supposed to sit, and I sit where I'm supposed to sit. Because then I can love them a whole lot more effectively. (laughs) Maybe part of the difficulty of getting behind this whole concept of love is that we have a really hard time defining love. I mean, we've heard a lot of definitions of love. We've heard some things that it's not, right? We've heard before, we've all probably heard that we often misunderstand love as a feeling. And so when the feeling wears out, we don't think we love someone anymore. We don't know what to do with that. We think that we're done loving in some ways. But the good news is that the Bible's full of stories and interesting things about love. And that's where I want to invite us to turn today. Is the book of 1 John. We could call this book a lot of things. We might call it the letter of love. It's an interesting little book. It's grouped with the letters. But some of you may notice that it doesn't really seem like a letter. It doesn't really have an opening greeting like the other letters. It doesn't have a closing greeting like a lot of the others. We're not entirely sure who wrote this. Lots of people think it was probably the the disciple John who wrote the Gospel of John because there's lots and lots of similarities uh, between it in a a lot of ways. Some people think it's maybe more like a pamphlet that was written and then circulated between various kinds of churches because we can't tell exactly who this author is writing to. And reading a pamphlet or reading a letter is a little bit like reading someone else's mail. Have you ever noticed that? Or listening to only one side of a telephone conversation. You don't know exactly what's going on on the other end of the line. So you have to kind of infer. This is easier when you read a letter like 1st or 2nd Corinthians because Paul sort of like lays it out, right? This is what you guys have been doing and this is really ticking me off. But in 1st John, you're not quite sure exactly. You have to do a lot more reading between the lines. But scholars think this. They think that whatever John's concerned about, it has something to do with the idea that these people, whomever they might be, have gotten away from something that they once knew. They got away from something that was sort of central to their faith. And the central thing is, you ready for it? Is loving one another. Loving one another. That simple And that complicated. Love. L-U-V. Love one another. So this book in some ways is a a book about love. About reminding us how to love and what love should look like in the body of Christ. Between mothers and fathers and children and, and brothers and sisters in the church. And even for us outside, loving those around us. My One of my favorite definitions of church is this. Church is a club that exists for non-members. Right? It's the only club that exists for non-members. We get together and encourage each other and have breakfast burritos and pray and sing and worship, and then we get sent out, right? We breathe in God, and we, then we, God breathes us out into the world. 
to tell other people about this club that they get to join for free. <laughs> Come and be a part of this. So 1 John chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. And a lot of you know this by heart because it's also a song we used to sing with lots of ch-ch-ch-ch-ch's in it and things like that. <laughs> Resist the temptation to sing this morning. Here's the word of the Lord. I'm reading from the Common English Bible. 1 John chapter 4, beginning at verse 7 through 12. I'm going to read it slow. Dear friends, let's love each other because love is from God. And everyone who loves is born from God and knows God. The person who doesn't love does not know God because God is love. This is how the love of God is revealed to us. God has sent his only son into the world so that we can live through him. This is love. It is not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the sacrifice that deals with our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us this way, we also ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God. If we love each other, God remains in us, and his love is made perfect in us. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I think it's hard sometimes to talk about love because we're, we're sketchy on a definition. And I think that this little passage in here can help us. It can help give us a definition of love. And so look at it with me again. The first thing it tells us about love is in verse 7. Verse 7, dear friends, let us love each other because love is from God. First of all, love is from God. Good news? Ought to be good news because we're not very good at love. And when you're having a hard time loving that person who's hard to love, you need to ask God for help. God is love. Everybody has someone annoying in their life. Someone hard to love, amen? Every group has someone annoying in it. If you're in a group and there's no one annoying in your group, it just might be you. Right? Love is from God. So we turn to God. We take, we take our, our strength from God. We're empowered by God. That's the first understanding we need to have of love. Secondly, love is revealed. Look at verse 9. This is how the love of God is revealed to us. So that's really important. We already talked about this. Love is not just a feeling. Feelings often come with love. I'm a psychologist. I don't have anything against feelings. I think feelings are good. I mean, I grew up in a period of time when lots of preachers would say, don't trust your feelings. Now all the brain research suggests that our feelings actually help our thinking. And if somehow we suffer a kind of brain injury where our feelings are disconnected from our rational thought, we make really bad decisions. Isn't that interesting? We've often had that flip the other way. Now, the other way can also be true. <laughs> we know that ourselves, right? There's sometimes when your feelings overwhelm your capacity to think, and then you're really in trouble as well. They're, 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 they're interconnected. They're both important. But love isn't just a feeling. Love is revealed. So if we're going to talk about what love is, we have to say that it's from God, and it's something that, in fact, is revealed to us. All right? You ready? Third, verse 10. This is love. It is not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the sacrifice that deals with our sins. So love is from God, one. Two, love is revealed, not just felt. And three, love is revealed in sacrificing. You with me so far? 
sense, all right? You got to get that. The rest of it is not going to make any sense <laughs> if you don't stay with me to this point. Love is from God. Love is revealed, and it's revealed through sacrifice. Love is a gift from God as revealed in the Son's sacrificial life and death. So when you say love, I want you to think Jesus. You follow? Jesus is the definition of love. Now, we say God is love, and Scripture says God is in love, but of course Jesus is God, and Jesus is God with skin on, and we see what God does in Jesus, right, in flesh and bone, up close and personal. So when you say love, you think Jesus. It sounds like a cheer in high school, right? When I say love, you say, there you go, perfect, all right. (laughs) This is our definition. Jesus is the definition of love. And then look at verse 11. Dear friends, if God loved us this way, we also ought to love each other. Now, this is where this gets really interesting. Really interesting. Some of you, not all of you, but some of you will remember the name Reuben Welch. Reuben Welch was a longtime professor at Point Loma Nazarene University, starting at Pasadena College. I don't know where I am now. Pasadena might be that way, I'm thinking. Is that right? Okay. Um, and he was chaplain uh, at, at Point Loma for many, many years, and he wrote a number of little amazing books. Run out and buy all of them if you can find them. Many of them are out of print. But in one of his most famous books, We Really Do Need Each Other, which is on 1 John, uh, he writes about these passages. And this is one of the things he said that just caught my imagination. He says, God is not so concerned that I love him as I know he loves me and that I love you. You need to hear that again? Yeah, you do. Okay. God's not so concerned that I love him. Of course, that's important. But God's not so concerned about that I love him as much as I know he loves me and that I love you. He means brothers and sisters in Christ. Mothers and fathers and daughters and sons and cousins and adopted and, and grafted in and, and second cousin twice removed and you know what I'm saying. So this is crazy and this is different and this is wonderful. See, because part of sometimes in the church, I think what happens is we can, we can get caught up in our own little sort of cocoon of me and Jesus. Have you ever noticed that? It's sort of all about me and Jesus. We start using language like personal relationship with Jesus. I'm not even sure what that means anymore as I read the Gospels. I'm a person for sure, but I'm a person embedded in a body always connected to other bodies. I take, I take Paul's metaphor, the body of Christ, pretty literally. I think he wants us to be the body of Christ, right? Some of us are eyebrows. This is Brad's translation. (laughs) Eyebrows and toenails, toes and feet and hands and eyes and mouths, right? And we all need each other desperately. But too frequently, not here, of course, at this church, but too many evangelical churches are not truly the body of Christ. They're what one of my colleagues calls the loose association of the independently spiritual. (laughs) Just people who sit in rows who don't even know each other. And they come every Sunday to consume the gospel, to buy them some Jesus. If they put a little money in the plate, usually they just get Jesus for free, right? So they can go out and face the rest of their week. And that doesn't seem gospel at all to me. God wants us to know that he loves us and then for us to love him, you. You see, it's never Jesus and me. It's always Jesus and we. My pastor at Paznaz recently said, God never said, I will be your God and you will be my person. Did God. 
God, God always said, I will be your God and you will be my what? My people, my body, my church. We lived in Oklahoma for six years, so we'd say, y'all. Y'all going to be my people. And we used to say, my pastor in Oklahoma used to say, you know, we read the Bible and we read the Psalms or we read the, the letters and we always see the word I and we hear that I as a personal pronoun. But the writer really means y'all. Because <laughs> they're always talking to a church or a people. Same thing for God and Jesus. It's always God and God's people. And John says in verse 11, we're to love like Jesus. The way we show our love for God is by loving one another. That is huge. Price of the admission right there. I could say amen and we could all go home. The way we show our love for God is by loving one another. Listen, if we can't do it here, where else is going to happen? If we can't do it here, who's going to want to be part of our club? If we can't do it here, how are we going to testify to the transforming work of God through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. We don't have anything to show for it. We got no resume if we can't love each other. So turn real quickly just over a page to John 3, 1 John 3.16. Not John 3.16, but 1 John 3.16. And get a little more definition. This one ought to blow your mind at this point. This is how we know love. Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for God, no, for our brothers and sisters, Scripture says. Because, this is my thesis, we show God's love by loving one another. We show God's love by laying down our lives for one another. Sacrificing is to lay down our lives for the needs of the other. So here's my definition. I went ahead and wrote a definition of love. If you use it, just make sure you give me um, credit. I'm an academician, so I like to see my name in print. <laughs> my definition is that love is the willful setting aside of oneself for the good of the other. And in the body of Christ, we know that brings praise and glory to whom? To God, the Father. And people see it, and it becomes our testimony. But you know what gets in the way of me loving well, don't you? You know what gets in the way of me loving well? Me. I get in the way. Because I consciously or unconsciously refuse to lay down my life for the other. It's hard to preach this sermon when your family's in the room. At least part of them. Don't tell Evan what I said. Right? By the way, I'm not preaching this sermon because I know how to do it well. <laughs> By the way, all preaching is autobiographical. Right, James? <laughs> we preach what we're dealing with. <laughs> what we're thinking about, what we're worried about, what we're trying to work out. I'm trying to work this out for a long time. But it get, it's me that gets in my way. And I'm convinced that why, part, a big part of why that is is because I live in a culture that's saturated with the idea that I shouldn't lay down my life. In fact, I should be completely concerned about my life. I should pay attention to me. Not just pay attention, I ought to be obsessed with me. By the way, do you take a picture of me so I can post it later, Keaton? Thank you. <laughs> right? It doesn't count if I don't have a picture of it on Instagram. You know, I was thinking, where am I, you know, how can I prove that I was up here to the people at Paznaz? <laughs> they thought I'm just playing hooky or something, you know? No, I was up serving the Lord, responding to James. <laughs> but the, the culture says we ought, to be, we ought to be obsessed with ourselves. 
And not only that, that we should, we should make sure that we don't sort of slow down. It doesn't tell us to pay attention to other people. In fact, what it does is it gets us involved deeply in a kind of distracting lifestyle where we're distracted all the time. One scholar says that we're distracting ourselves to death. What do you mean, Brad? I don't know what you're talking about. I can't possibly know what you're talking about. <laughs> That's me texting, by the way. It's a pretty good impression, I thought. <laughs> we're distracted. The culture doesn't tell us to lay down our lives. It tells us to pick up our lives, to pay attention to it, to worry about it, to become obsessed with it, to chronicle it and, and mark it and, and, and go on and on about it, make sure people know about it. So to love, like this definition from 1 John tells us, to love is hard and it's countercultural. It's difficult. It goes against the grain in powerful, powerful ways. It's difficult for us to love. So what in the world does then it look like to lay down our life, right? We said we could love in theory, but now we're getting more personal. Now we're talking about putting skin on it and embodying it. It looks like laying down our lives. Well, in Scripture, in the Gospels, we know that that kind of love means a lot. It looks like a lot. It means things like feeding the poor and visiting the sick and caring for the orphans and the widows, right? And sometimes it means dying, that's the context we talk about with Jesus, right? And there's a few people in your life that you might be willing to die for. Now, thankfully, I don't think most of us are called to be martyrs. But we're still called to lay it down. We're still called to lay it down. What could laying it down look like for you? Well, in a world of distraction, this is, here, this is what I think it means. Go back to my talk about attachment literature. I think it means paying attention. I think it means showing up. I think laying down our lives means learning to listen to the other. Paul Tillich, the great theologian, said the first duty of love is to listen. Now we're getting back to fathers and mothers and families, aren't we? In attachment. Seeing our kids. Seeing grandparents. Seeing those in need around us. Seeing seeing, seeing with the eyes of Jesus, seeing what Jesus sees. So instead of living a distracted, as a distracted individual, we learn to listen. We learn to see the, each other. Now, I remember when my kids were little again, probably about, it's hard to tell, they're 22 months apart, so something like uh, four and two or three and five, something like that. I remember the early days of, of, of our lives and our career, and I was just getting established sort of as a, as a professor at Point Loma Nazarene. And, and so I was teaching all these new classes I'd never taught before. And my poor wife's at home trying to take care of these two little ones, you know. And, and any of you that have had two little ones close together, you know, it's like a diaper uh, dump there at the house. And it's just, it's overwhelming and, and, and all these kinds of things. And then I was also trying to get licensed as a, as a clinical psychologist practicing. So I would go and teach my classes and then I would go to my practice and then I'd run home at night. And, and we were all exhausted, right? You remember that? Just having kids is exhausting. Um, we love you, and you're exhausting. Um, <laughs> and I remember coming home one night when, before the boys were, uh, uh, before they were ready for bed, and um, I don't remember exactly how we got in my, my older son's room, and it was, you know, he, we had just kind of moved from the crib thing to the day bed. You remember the day bed thing? It's got like a little rail so they don't fall out. Somehow they still fall out. I don't know how they do that. Um, and so uh, we, we all got in my son's room, and I just plopped down in the rocking chair, and I was exhausted. And Evan and Keaton climbed up in the bed, and they began to jump on the bed, which, you know, kids are prone to do, and it's a lot of fun, and I would do it too if it would have supported my weight. 
And they're jumping, Daddy, we're jumping. And yeah, and so then I'm just exhausted. And I remember just like, I don't know where I went. I went somewhere, though. And all of a sudden, I became aware that the jumping had stopped. (laughs) And I looked up, and they were looking at me. And Evan, the four-year-old, says, Daddy, we're jumping. Like, get involved. Your job is to watch the jumping. Did you not get the memo? We jump, you watch. That's how it works, right? So here, here it is, right? Clinical psychologist, highly trained, spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? Teaching classes, going and helping people in the evening, and I can't pay attention to my kids jumping. Distracted. We show up. It's the first act of love. You see, the way to learn to love, though, is not to study it. You can't read about it in books. I mean, you can, but it doesn't help you. (laughs) If love is to be embodied, then to get there, we have to embody it. To learn to love, we don't study it. You ready for it? We practice it. We have to practice it. John Wesley, the Nazarene great-grandfather. Some of you probably heard this name, right? James probably throwing it around every once in a while. John Wesley, our great, 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 I don't know how many greats he might be, but he's one of our great-grandfathers in this church. John Wesley liked to talk about sanctification. And for him, sanctification, depending on where you read and when you read him, he talks about it in various ways at different times, but my favorite definition for him goes something like this. Sanctification is there when love is ruling one's heart and one's life. You hear that? Sanctification is happening when love is ruling one's heart and one's life. It it doesn't mean that just you're capable of love. Anybody can act in a loving way. Wesley said sanctification is in the house when people become people of love, right? We just know what to do. We see the need and we step into it. We pay attention so we notice it. Man, I don't know about you, but I got a long way to go. I got a long way to go in my process of sanctification. But God is the source of love. And that's the good news about all of this. But it means that we have to practice. It means we have to practice. And we, again, are in a culture that tells us to be obsessed with ourselves, to be distracted all the time. So how do we practice love? Again, we show up. And you know where we show up? Number one, we show up here. I become more and more convinced that the church of Christ is the place that provides the rituals and the practices where we start to love our neighbor as ourself. Because some of you guys are hard to love, James told me. (laughs) And you don't even know, right? That's how good he is. Your pastor is sanctified. But this is where you come, right? And you're in a group. And you serve alongside people. And sometimes they say funny things. And sometimes they look at you funny. And sometimes they smell funny. And they're different from you. And that's okay. Because that's where you learn to practice loving. That's where you learn to do it. And we sing. And the slow people have to speed up. And the fast people have to slow down. And we learn to love each other. And we read the reading, and some of you want to get way ahead. Slow down, right? And some of you want to go way too slow. Speed up. (laughs) And we pass the peace. Why do we pass the peace? Why do we say good morning? Because it's an ancient ritual of practicing hospitality. 
we sometimes forget the stories of why we do some of the things we do. Sometimes it's good to be reminded. Because if we can't be friendly to the people in the pew behind us and know their name, how can we be friendly to our neighbors? How can we be friendly to anybody else in the world? If we can't notice the different person among us, how will we notice the different out there? Right? If we can't take care of those in need in here, how in the world will we ever take care of the ones in need out there? The church provides the rituals and the practices for us to become people of love, to be sanctified through and through, where love is ruling our hearts and our lives. So my last thing, and I'm almost done, I promise, is as Mother Teresa said, though, sometimes what we need are actually small acts of great love. Sometimes if you're like me, you get overwhelmed. There's so many homeless people. There's so many hungry people. There's so many needs in the world. I don't know what to do. I can't possibly do anything. I think I'll just go home, you know, and watch Golden State beat Cleveland, right? That's called pandering to the home team, right? (laughs) I think I'll just go watch Netflix. I want to do good. Your heart's in the right place, but you're just overwhelmed. You've got compassion fatigue. You don't know where to begin. You don't know where to start. It's too much. Sometimes what we need, though, are small acts of great love. I got to tell you this, this, this one more story. Friend of some of ours, uh, Dean Nelson, down at Point Loma College in the journalism department, um, tells a story about when he and his wife were, had their first son, Blake. He wasn't that old. He had actually had, he was on his second kind of bizarre break of his pelvic bone. He'd had just an accident, and he'd broken his pelvic bone once, and he put these poor kids in a full body cast, right, and kind of lay them on the floor, and say, hey, buddy, um, that had happened to him once, and then it happened to him again. Dean and Marcia were in graduate school. They didn't have a lot of money. They were in uh, Minnesota in the heat of the summer. They were exhausted. They were tired. They were worn out. They were grieving for their poor little guy, just a little guy, second time at a body cast laying there um, on the floor. It was a hard time. And Dean said a knock came at the door. And he opened up the door, and there was his little old lady neighbor live next door. Dean says she's about 150. <laughs> and she was wearing a little house coat. Remember those little house coats? You know? You don't know if it's flowers or what it is on there because it's so faded. And, and Dean's like thinking, oh, great. This is all I need. What in the world does she want? And she says, uh, I hear Blake's having some trouble. Yeah? So? Thought I might be able to help. Great. Dean's thinking, right? What can you, little old lady, 150 years old, in your house coat, you weigh about 74 pounds, what possibly can you do? He says, come on in. She shuffles in, sees Blake laying on the floor, pulls over a chair right in front of Blake, reaches in that pocket in the house coat. There's always one pocket in there. She pulls out a balloon, starts stretching it. Then she starts blowing it up. He thought she was going to pass out. (laughs) She blows it up, ties it off, and then she goes down to Blake on the floor. And Blake goes. They begin to play what I like to call balloon volleyball. And Dean's watching this, kind of dumbfounded, And finally, Marcia grabs him and pulls him in the kitchen, and she's weeping. She says, what's wrong? 
He says, I haven't seen Blake smile in weeks. Sometimes showing up, paying attention, loving, is small acts of great love. We're to lay it down like Jesus laid it down. What might that look like for you? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these good people. For this good church, we know about it. We have heard of them and their great acts of love and kindness toward one another in their community. I pray that you could keep empowering them to be literally the body of Christ with all their uniqueness and differentness. I pray, Lord, that you continue to help them to see and pay attention, to pay attention in their families, Lord, between fathers and sons and daughters and mothers and fathers and mothers and daughters and sons and grandparents and cousins and brothers and sisters in Christ and neighbors and people at work. Lord Jesus, teach us how to love. Help us to return to that first love. Help us to lay ourselves down. Help us to sacrifice ourselves for the other. For this is how you have loved us. And we are grateful and we are thankful. And now we ask that you will empower us to do the same for your people. We show you we love you, God, by taking care of and loving your sheep. In Jesus' name.